Celia Littleton has a souvenir from her travels that no one else in the world will ever own. She scoured the world for just the right mix of ingredients to compose her own perfect personal perfume. This scent trail took her from France and Italy to Morocco, Turkey, India, Sri Lanka, Yemen, and an island where they even know how to turn a secretion of sperm whales into one of the world's most sought-after aphrodisiacs. I mean, a good scent should never shout at you. It should be subtle. In the wake of somebody leaving, you will smell a slight cloud of their scent and their presence. Celia shares her discoveries as she made her personal fragrance on the scent trail in just a moment. And travel writer Don George shares some of the stories he's collected in which the kindness of strangers made all the difference. I'm Rick Steves. Stay with us for an hour that promises to refresh both your senses and your spirit. It's coming right up on Travel with Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're mixing travel and perfume. Celia Littleton was raised with an appreciation for the subtle fragrances that graced her childhood home in Tuscany. Her desire to concoct her ideal personal scent took her around the world to visit regions that cultivate particularly sought-after fragrances and to understand their customs. She'll tell us what she discovered on the scent trail in just a moment. And we'll also share stories of the kindness of strangers that saved the day in our overseas travels with Don George a little later in the hour. Let's start by following our noses today on Travel with Rick Steves. Imagine somebody who can travel and write, My perfume is an archive of that journey, dissolving time and igniting recall. My scent encapsulates distant lands, and its aromatic composition is filled with stories. My travels have found an afterlife in my scent. Today we're talking with Celia Littleton, author of The Scent Trail, talking about one woman's quest for the perfect scent that took her around the world. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're joined by Celia Littleton. Celia, thanks for being with us. Hi. Hello. Amazing that you can put together the perfect scent for you that can be actually like a souvenir that keeps on giving. Tell us about your quest. That's exactly it. But I realized in order for the book to have structure, I had to have a bespoke scent, which is like a tailor-made scent, and that each ingredient that went into that perfume would represent a chapter and my search for that particular ingredient. And that solved all the problem of how to structure the book. So you set out and literally traveled around the world collecting your favorite perfumes, is that right? Some of them, you know, I chose admittedly because they had an interesting journey within them. For instance, nutmeg is a wonderful ingredient for perfume. And the story behind nutmeg is fascinating because it's actually the birth of New York. Because when the Dutch and the British were fighting over the nutmeg trees, which were growing on the island of Run in the Banda archipelago in the East Indies, a war waged between them because nutmeg was such a um, expensive spice and so sought after in the 17th century that they actually swapped a valueless piece of land called New Amsterdam with the Dutch and the British had New York and the currency was nutmeg. Now, I've read that people think it's an aphrodisiac or nutmeg can make you high. What made it so valuable? Because it had lots of healing powers. It was said indeed to be a bit of an aphrodisiac the people used to carry their own personalised nutmeg graters. And in fact, Charles Dickens had his own monogrammed nutmeg grater. And it was just considered a, a, a wonderful luxury, like pineapples were then. Does it make you high? Uh, I did try it, and it, yes, it does make you a bit high. I tried it with a few spoonfuls of brandy, and it certainly does make you slightly trippy, so, but I didn't want to go too far. So conceivably, Charles Dickens could have enjoyed his nutmeg and had his own grinder because it made him high. It, indeed, it could have. Wow. Now, do different countries have a smell when you travel to India or Japan or France? Do you think of a particular smell? Originally, the book was going to be called The Geography of Scent, but then I actually realized that every country or part of the world is psychogeographical. And if you were to put me blindfold say, in the middle of India or somewhere in India, I would know I was in India because I would smell the beady smoke, which is these funny little cigarettes they smoke. Yeah, so you have these personal associations, these memories. Yes. So scents are literally souvenirs. 
they're literally souvenirs and the jasmine of India and garlands of tuberose, and I'd know instantly I was in India just by smelling. Now, Proust wrote, each hour of our lives is stored in a smell or a taste. Do you believe that? This is absolutely true. Um, He also said that smell is the nightlight in the bedroom of memory. I think everybody's eating nutmeg here. (laughs) (laughs) But um, more than any photograph or piece of music can bring you back uh, to that particular memory, scent Mm. is much, much stronger. It can bring back a certain moment in your life with hallucinatory vividness. I love that. And you, you stumble, even if you're not tuned into that, the traveler stumbles onto that. You, you, you have this uh, deja vu feeling that comes to you through the sense of smell. Completely. But now, yes, are, are some people, when I read your book, uh, Celia, by the way, I'm, I'm speaking with Celia Littleton. She's written a fascinating book called The Scent Trail, How One Woman's Quest for the Perfect Perfume Took Her Around the World. I mean, I was just marveling at your ability to describe scents. And I thought, I'm pretty crude in this regard. Uh, Are some more blessed with an ability to appreciate the fine differences of smells than others, or is it something that we all have uh, buried in us? Well, thank you very much for the compliment. Um, Well, I think perfume and smell is deeply entrenched into our psyche, but we're not always aware of it. I think particularly good writers in the past, like Baudelaire and uh, Proust we've mentioned, were very good at writing on smell. And I certainly, at the beginning of the book, found it a real struggle to compare smells with other things or to be able to describe a smell without using too many metaphors or overusing certain words like aromatic or spicy or overwhelming and so on. So I had to really watch out for that. Take me on the boat just offshore in Yemen in the land of frankincense and myrrh. Tell me about that. Well, that was the last chapter and the most, in a way, magical and most adventurous. And in fact, when we set out for the Yemen, the foreign office had said it's advisable not to go because you could get kidnapped. Uh, Eventually, we got to this wonderful island of Socotra, where one third of its flora and fauna is unique to the island. And it really did have all the promise of what the ancients had written about it, that it had this unearthly smell of virgin forests of frankincense and myrrh. And um, I also went in search of this, the most mysterious of agents in perfume called ambergris, which actually comes from, it's a byproduct of the whale. And I went out with the fishermen on Socotra, rowing in search of ambergris. In the book, anyway, in the chapter, it tells how eventually I found it. And I still have it in my box, and I have a little bit of it, and I add it to my perfume. Okay, you went way to the far reaches of the world to get a little box of ambergris. What's the shelf life of that? Does it, over time, become worthless, or does it get better? Well, that's a a very, very good, clever question. It actually, the shelf life is hundreds and hundreds of years. Even if you put a little bit of ambergris on a letter, that'll last 45 years. And there's a room in Hampton Court which is panelled and was painted with ambergris or doused in it, the wood panelling. So you dab a little ambergris on a letter yes. and you seal it and you send it to somebody. That's right. And, and for 45 years, they can open it up and, After, and remember. Yeah. Celia Littleton, what a class act. <laughs> this room in Hampton Court uh, was Elizabeth I's favourite room and favourite scent. And you could still go in Hampton Court now and smell the ambergris. What does ambergris smell like? Room. I have no idea what it smells like. Oh, it's sort. It's like uh, suntan skin, salt sea air. It has a, a velvety smell. It also the important thing to remember is that it's a fixative in scent, and it also makes seemingly innocent floral perfume smell much more mysterious once it is added. Wow! Everybody needs some ambergris in their lives. They certainly do. (laughs) It's a real life enhancer. I love talking to travelers who are into something I'm not into and that can open the door to a whole other dimension of travel. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Celia Littleton, and Celia writes a book called The Scent Trail. Celia, let's talk a little bit about the physiology of all this. Uh, According to your book, you can recognize your nose, my nose, can recognize 500,000 different odors. This is true. And, and this skill doesn't fade away with age. I mean, when you get older, you can still smell with the same um, distinction that a younger person can. Exactly. I mean, our sense of smell 
never fails us. Um, it gets stronger, in fact, as we get older, unlike other things like uh, sight. Now, one of the most fascinating experiences for me, I was in Paris on the Champs-Élysées, I think the flagship outlet of the Sephora store, you know, the big perfume chain, and they had this wheel of scents, this wheel of smells, and a woman was there, and you could make your own perfume, and I didn't realize, but it was like a color chart. It went from barnyard to lavender. I don't know what the extremes are, but there's actually... A, a sort of a scientific, arithmetic kind of progression of smells from cow pie to lavender blossom. Or, or Can you tell us a little bit about that? A lot of the terminology of perfume is compared to the terminology of music and of colours. For instance, jasmine, its colour equivalent is a, a deep, deep red, even though jasmine is white. And it does relate to colours. And when I began my tailor-made scent, my bespoke scent, one of the sessions was actually with a colour psychologist. And the ambergris represented my favourite gem, which is a sapphire. And there's this harmonicity. You, you mention in your book the language of music is like the language of perfume. There's an olfactory It certainly harmonicity. is. What do you mean by that exactly? Well, a good perfume uh, will be like a perfect, beautifully played piano concerto or a piece of music by Mozart, in that all the notes in the perfume float along with each other and are perfectly balanced, as the notes in music would be. In music, you've got harmonicity. A, a G is half the vibrations of a C, so it goes together well, because every two vibrations, they coincide. Uh, that's the acoustics of sound. That's a very clever comparison. It's exactly like that. It's almost like if you've got two files of mimosa that balances out the quite strong, carnal smell of an Indian's uh, jasmine. So the marriage can be a minimizing of the uh, dissonance in the harmony. If it's in the harmonic overtone series, as far as your nose is concerned, those two scents go together well. Exactly. I mean, a good scent should never shout at you. It should be subtle, and it should have what people call a silage, or sayage in French, where... In the wake of somebody leaving, you'll smell a, a slight cloud wow, of their scent very and their presence. Now it's, I'm relating to it. So a C and a G are in harmony beautifully. A C and an F sharp are what they call the devil's interval because it's they sound the so ugly together. So you could take they two. They sound so ugly. There's nothing wrong with an F sharp. There's nothing wrong with a C. You put them together and it makes you want to wretch. Yeah. If you ever notice when you go into what I call the duty-free zone of oh, perfume. Yes. I feel it's like the Muzak of perfume, that it makes you sneeze, that you have an instant reaction. It's mud. To a lot of these overhyped, celebrity-hyped ah. perfumes. They are, I find they do shout at you, and they have very little afterlife on your skin. They only last, you spray it on, and they only last about 20 minutes, and you sneeze, and that's because they're filled with synthetics. We'll continue with Celia Littleton and include your calls at 877-333-RICK in just a moment as we venture down the scent trail on Travel with Rick Steves. Eight seven seven three 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 ricks our number, as we share stories of fragrances that make our travels come alive. Our guest on Travel with Rick Steves is Celia Littleton, author of The Scent Trail, published by Penguin Books. Now, 
there's a long history of uh, perfume, and it's not just to smell good and smell nice around other people. There's many other practical purposes. Of course, uh, the scent can attract a mate. It can help you flirt. It can arouse people. It can protect you. It can wake you up. It can enhance your mind. Talk about some of the historic purposes of perfume. Oh, well, um, there are lots and still indeed survive, like um, the small Yemeni children had a little bunch of myrrh pinned to their clothes, to their pinnies, because the smell of the myrrh kept the flies away from them. And also the superstitious thing was that they believed it kept the evil spirits away from their children. Moroccan aristocrats actually, as a ritual, a daily ritual for breakfast, they had put a bit of musk in their hot milk so that for the rest of the day they will literally sweat out the scent of musk. The scent has many healing properties. It's both sacred and profane. And it makes their body odor smell better. Exactly. This is in Morocco. Does it work? Can, can, can I do this? It, yes, it certainly does. So if I and eat, m- what am I going to eat to help my body odor? Uh, well, what you could do, you just have some hot milk and you put right. a grain of real musk into it. Wow. And then your body will put out slight smells um, of, of this musk. And it's part of the daily lives of many cultures. For instance, in Turkey, when you get on the bus, you're sprayed with orange water or rose water. Imagine getting on the bus here and going through Central Park and being sprayed with uh, rose water. You know, I, I, I love that ritual. Now that you mention it, that's one of the delights of traveling on a bus in Turkey. Delights, is, and, exactly. And the tourists kind of go, yeah, 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 and they put out their hands. But you realize this is an elegance that this culture has because they appreciate the scent of that rose water. Exactly, and it's a very fragile tradition. And it needs to be um, maintained. And the other thing as well, in in many Middle Eastern cultures, as in Turkey, is that actually you can eat scent in the fact that you have this wonderful Turkish delight, which is suffused and flavoured with rose and rose water. So in many ways, it's something that you consume as well. Now, smells are the cultural thing. Do some cultures just appreciate smells and use smells more than others? I, I certainly think so, especially, for instance, in India, where we might buy the daily paper. Um, Indians, you know, even truck drivers will buy a garland of jasmine to either put round their wing mirrors or round their wrists, partly to keep rather awful smells, say, of open sewers and so on that you have in India, to keep the smell of that at bay. They could just smell a sprig of their jasmine. So it's much part of their daily life and ritual. In Morocco, when you go to a leather souk, there's a lot of smell of bad leather uh, being dyed and, and rotting or whatever, and they give you a sprig of mint to put under your nose as you tour it. Exactly. And in fact, I mean, modern perfumery sprung up in grass because it was originally tanneries for leather, and they realized that they had to disguise the smell of urine, which softens the oh, leather that's why the perfume. that's why the leather souks smell so bad is the leather is being softened in urine. Exactly. Tubs of urine. So give me the mint. I'm Rick Steves. <laughs> this is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about scents and perfumes all around the world. We're joined by Celia Littleton. She's written a fascinating book called The Scent Trail, How One Woman's Quest for the Perfect Perfume Took Her All Around the World. Normally's on the phone in New York. Normally, thanks for your call. Um, I, I wondered if Celia had ever been to Iran, particularly the wonderful gardens of Shiraz and the roses, and walked in the in the spice bazaars. Celia, well, that, that's a very um, pertinent question because actually, it's one of the places I would love to have gone to. Okay, is uh, Iran or or what was known as Persia? Yes. But uh, I realize that really the world's biggest harvest of roses is actually in Anatolia, in Turkey. So in the end, I chose Turkey to go and find the rose so I could actually witness the real harvesting of okay. the rose plantations. But alas, in Iran, what is known as Iran now, they don't have that culture anymore or growing plantations of roses, even though they actually invented the rose scent to put into a perfume. But it's somewhere I would 
would really love to visit. So it's interesting you brought up Iran. Excellent. Well, you can come with us. We're going soon. <laughs> I'll come. Besides the flowers, there's also the sense of the many uh, spices that one finds in the bazaars, which are fascinating to, to remember, to, to smell and remember. And so if you do come, I would encourage you to uh, taste the sense of the bazaars. Oh, I'd absolutely love to come. I'm going to go and choose my pink purder now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, Norma Lee, thanks for your call. Uh, thank you. And Rachel's on the phone in Bainbridge Island, Washington. Rachel, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Hi. I wanted to let you know about this wonderful little place we came across in Ireland. We were staying in Galway, which is on the west coast of Ireland, and there's an area near there called the Barrens, where the glaciers came through and pretty much scraped things right flat down to the granite. And then over time, there were little crevices and whatnot with the ice, and so they've got this uh, lots of little plants with... Um, unique little flowers uh, that grow in that part of Ireland. And we were day tripping, as I said, and, and there's a, a little perfumery sort of tucked away, not too far from Galway, in the Barrens. And, uh, and they were distilling all of the local plants and herbs and flowers, and it was just a, a lovely little place. You know, that's a beautiful corner of Ireland. It's called the Burren, B-U-R-R-E-N, and right. it's, it's famous because it's got this unique climate where you've got tropical flowers and flowers from the, the Arctic tundra together, sharing the same rocks. And it's a, a, a very rough and wild environment, and it's uh, beautiful to think that they would be uh, making perfume right there. It was a great day. It sounds absolutely heaven there. Actually, this little perfumery is uh, run by a friend of mine called Sadie Cowan, and it's almost like I'd like to write a sequel to the book and have Iran and this lovely microclimate of the Burren. One of the odd corners of nature where they can take advantage and, and have some beautiful uh, perfumes. Rachel, thanks for your tip. Thank you. Thank you. Celia, very briefly, explain the plot of the book. You, you travel, you learn, you collect, you come home, you cook, you make your bespoke scent. Give us a quick rundown on that, please. It's actually part travel log, part history of perfume, and I really wanted to describe the journey from field to the bottle and all the processes that flowers or resins or leaves go through in order to end up as absolutes that go into perfumes. And after all those thousands of miles and weeks of enjoying the different perfumes of the world, you created your personal scent. Was it a success? What does it do for you? is an immense success, and it is encapsulated in a bottle like a dejin. It's like an archive of all those journeys, and it's, it's very layered. And it's still actually even maturing in the lab of creative perfumers in London, where anybody can go and have their own scent made, and it's just next to the Ritz. And it's rather like a vintage wine. It's still maturing. Uh, but I have a little file of it, and I take it wherever I go. And it is reminiscent of all your travel fun. It's completely reminiscent, and I almost thought of calling it reminiscent, but I thought that was just too too silly in the end. Well, whatever you call it, I think you have created this souvenir for the traveler who's got everything, a perfume that takes you back to the places of wonder you experienced in your travels. Celia Littleton, author of The Scent Trail, how one woman's quest for the perfect perfume took her around the world. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. To maintain that beautiful harmony... We're joined next by Don George. Don's a travel writer and editor who maintains a blog in the online magazine section of the Geographic Expeditions website at gox.com. Travel just wouldn't be travel without bumping into people and bumping into kind people. The kindness of strangers, it's fundamental to travel, and those who manage to bump into strangers by being a little more casual and ad-lib, I would say have better travels. 
I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today, we're going to explore the kindness of strangers. In fact, there's a book out called The Kindness of Strangers. It's edited by Don George. It's a collection of 26 essays on how, when you get far away from home, sometimes your whole travel experience is carbonated and warmed up by bumping into a stranger who treats you very kindly. Don, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure, Rick. Thank you. What a treat to edit a book where you just collect a bunch of stories of wonderful, inspirational examples of the kindness of strangers. How'd you get that gig? (laughs) It's the ultimate feel-good book. And in these times, it's probably a very timely book. I mean, it's a soothing thing to read about how people are generally good. It really is a soothing thing. And the genesis for the book was my own experiences in 25 years as a travel writer and editor that wherever I go two truths emerge. One is that I'm going to get into trouble somehow or other, wherever I am. And the other is that someone's going to come out of nowhere to take care of me wherever I am. And I find that this transcends everything that you might think of as dividing human beings, whether it's your upbringing, your religious faith, whatever it is, your economic status. People really do care about each other around the globe, and they really do take care of you when you get into trouble, when you need it. So I I asked friends who were writers if they had stories, and they all had stories. And then I asked through the Lonely Planet website, uh, the world at large, if they had stories of kindness on the road. And we got hundreds and hundreds of stories submitted to us of kindness. And so it was a pure joy to put this book together. And every time I read the stories, I just feel anew both the wanderlust to get out there and see the world and that sense of human connection that happens in the best travels when you feel really inextricably bound to somebody on the other side of the globe. And I'm just so impressed you got the Dalai Lama to write the intro. Yes. You know, he writes, our own happiness is inextricably bound up in the happiness of others. What What a beautiful man. He's a beautiful man, and he probably is the greatest embodiment of kindness on the planet. And I think this theme really resonated with him. I felt wordlessly blessed when he decided that he would write the introduction to the book. And it sort of was the final touch on a project that from beginning to end had a very special power about it. When I tell people about the book, everyone seems really drawn to the idea and everyone has their own tale to tell. So I think it's a book that captures some some zeitgeist that's out there that's that we all need to have a little infusion of right now. The message of the book almost furthers the Dalai Lama's uh purpose here on earth, I think. I mean, I I just love what he wrote in the beginning of the book. And he wrote, uh, there are hundreds of millions of acts of kindness at this very moment, far more than acts of violence. Perhaps because so many acts of kindness are so common, they go unnoticed. It's kind of the nature of the media and and our hyper-fast and energized world that all the good stuff just gets plowed under by all the, um, if it bleeds, it leads kind of stuff these days. That's exactly right. And the other thing I found is that The book has inspired me to be more kind myself. The other day, there were some tourists in in San Francisco, and a man was on the cable car, and he clearly had forgotten to bring his money with him. And and the conductor was waiting to get the money for him to ride the cable car. He didn't have any money. So I just reached into my own pocket and pulled out a few dollars and, and paid for his fare. It's a very small, very insignificant in the grand scheme of things act of kindness. But this man was so thrilled. He, he had tears in his eyes thanking me for doing that. And everybody on the cable car kind of had this little glow about them after doing that. And I just <laughs> like to think that you send that out and other people pick it up and they do it and the planet gets a little bit better step by step that way. That's maybe something travelers can contribute to the planet because by our very nature, when we're far away from home, we are strangers and we are relying on the kindness of other strangers. Talking about this just causes... I was trying to think... What, what sort of, you know, interesting acts of kindness have I experienced? And I just thought of one that I had forgotten. I was in Belize, in the jungle of Belize, in a rented car with my wife. And Belize is, is really um, pretty wild when you get into the countryside. And we were in the middle, absolute middle of nowhere, driving around a couple of big city, you know, gringos. And suddenly mm. our car just rolls to a stop. I don't know what happened, but our car just stopped. And we rolled down the window, and it was just the sound of the jungle. And I didn't know where we were. It was getting late in the day. I didn't know what we were going to do. And then about five minutes later, a pickup appears. And a man comes out, and he says, my name is Gabriel, and I'm here to help. And he had a, <laughs> <laughs> like the angel Gabriel. 
And in this wonderful Belizean English, you know, he had a toolkit in the back of his truck and he opened up the hood and I wouldn't know what to do, but he fixed our car and he was said, he just said, you know, welcome to Belize. And he went off and we drove safely back to our hotel. And I just thought, wow, that could have been a nightmare. And it turned out to be a little gem that I've kept with me for the rest of my life because Mm. Gabriel was there and he was there to help. (laughs) Uh, That's beautiful. Can I get a chapter in your next edition? Oh, you're, you've got it. You've got it. <laughs> All right, Don, top that in the derby of kindness of strangers. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have my own Gabriel story, and it was the first time I ever was in Cairo. As I am wont to do when I go to a city I don't know, I just like to wander around and, and generally get lost, and I'm pretty good at it, and I usually discover something really wonderful that way. Well, this time in Cairo, I wandered, and for some reason, I, when confronted with the choice of two turns, I always took the wrong one, and I got farther and farther away from anything that looked familiar. And the pathway I was on was getting narrower and narrower and narrower. And there were more and more men sitting on the stoops of their homes. And they just looked like more and more desperate men. There was a kind of a hostility in the air. There was a very uncomfortable vibration all around. And I I didn't know what to do. And I just kept walking, hoping that salvation would emerge. And finally, I reached a point where I was literally stepping over people's legs to try to find the end of this path I was on. And I just paused at one moment and thought, this is it. Uh, These people are eyeing my clothing enviously. They're looking at my watch enviously, my ballpoint pen. I think that something really bad is going to happen to me right here. And at that moment, this young boy, maybe six or seven, eight years old, emerged really out of nowhere, just emerged suddenly and took my hand. And I stood there at the end of this alleyway with this little boy holding my hand. He turned me around without a word. He just led me down one alley, down another, down another. He led me out of the predicament I'd gotten into. And finally, we ended up in a big square that I recognized, and I knew how to get back to my hotel from there. And in the moment of recognition, I just looked around me and thought, oh, my gosh, this is really wonderful. And I turned to say thank you to the boy, and he had just melted away into the crowd. (laughs) My jaw is dropped. I mean, that is such a beautiful <laughs> image. Don George from a lonely planet going into the neighborhood the little boy's mother told him never to go, <laughs> yeah, right. and he rescued you. Yeah. That's a beautiful What story. an amazing moment. Oh. Each day I'll do, Each day I'll do a, golden deed, a golden deed by helping those who are in Let's hear stories of encountering the kindness of strangers in your travels. We're at 877-333-RICK, and radio at ricksteves.com is the email address. It's travel with Rick Steves. Ik ben Guusje van Hest uit Nederland, en ik reis met Rick Steves. That means I am Guusje van Hest from the Netherlands, and I'm traveling with Rick Steves. Ik ben Guusje van Hest uit Nederland, en ik reis met Rick Steves. We're sharing tales of the kindness of strangers from our travels with Don George. Don compiled and edited the tales of more than two dozen travelers, such as Jan Morris, Pico Ayer, Alice Waters, Jeff Greenwald, and Rolf Potts in his book called The Kindness of Strangers. It was published by Lonely Planet and includes a preface by the Dalai Lama. You know, one of my favorite chapters in the book, Don, was uh, written by Carolyn Swindle. And, uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'll just very briefly recount what I remember. But she was your typical American traveler in her khakis and her tennis shoes and so on. And she was down in uh, Argentina, right? And there's this right. sexy tango culture. And everybody was just <laughs> so voluptuous and so over the top and so enchanting. And she just felt very clunky. And she felt very lonely. And everybody looked like they were just like a dreamscape down there. And she went into a shop to buy something, some nice dress that would make her feel better. And the saleswoman wouldn't let her buy old lady underwear. 
the sales lady <laughs> made her buy some sexy underwear. And it was the sweetest story. And the way Carolyn told it, and she wore those you know, hotter underwear for the rest of her trip, and she enjoyed her travels better. It was just very, very sweet, even for a guy to read. <laughs> it was very sweet. And the, the salesperson at the end says to her, I believe it was, you beautiful, never forgot. Yeah, it made a huge difference that Carolyn traveled with. It transformed the rest of her trip. And I, I, I believe it's transformed her to this very day. <laughs> <laughs> Our phone number is 877-333-7425. By email, you can reach us at radio at ricksteves.com. We got Kristen on the line from Dublin, Ohio. Kristen, thanks for your call. Well, I was just calling about an experience I had for the kindness of strangers in Ireland. I was going to the Cliffs of Moher with my 10-year-old daughter, and we had taken a bus, and it was time for the, the bus to leave for us to go on with our travels. And I had to go to the bathroom, and I thought, well, I had time to do that. And my daughter got on the bus, and I ran to the restroom. And when I got back, I could see the bus just pulling out of the parking lot there. And so I was obviously panicked. Um, and some of the people around me, there were some German tourists, and they decided they would help me. So we got in the car, and, of course, Germans like to drive fast. So um, we went alongside the bus with the German tourists, kept you know honking the horn at the bus, but the re- bus refused to stop until we got where the regular bus place was. Then I got on, on the bus, and I yelled, oh, my daughter's in this bus. And then my, when I got onto the bus, my daughter was, like, down in her seat trying to pretend she didn't even know me because I had embarrassed her. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness for those German uh, speed drivers, huh? <laughs> I know, and I, I don't normally like to drive that fast, but I was so panicked that it, it didn't even bother me how fast we were going. With your daughter on a bus leaving you on the other side of the world, I can imagine. Follow that bus. <laughs> and before cell phones and all the things that, you know, you might, you know, give your children now if you were touring. So, you know, if you got separated, you could call each other and that kind of thing. Hmm. Well, so. that's, that's a beautiful story. Thanks. Thanks so much, Kristen. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Don George. Don is the editor of the online travel magazine, Recce, and he is also the host of the adventure travel website, Don's Place. Uh, We've got Adam in Fresno that's emailed us, and Adam writes, My travel partner and I missed the bus one day while on a tour of England. Uh, He left his money belt on the bus, and I did not have enough cash to cover it. After hours of trying to figure out how we'd meet up with the group, we got hold of our tour guide who wired us the money. He was so impressed that two 19-year-old Americans found a tour group halfway across England, he invited us to stay with him at his home in Amsterdam. Halfway through our stay, he said he was leaving on a trip. He gave us his house key and an Amsterdam museum card and simply said, leave the key when you depart. Wow, that's pretty cool. (laughs) People trust people, Don, don't they? They do. It's so wonderful when that bond gets established. They really do trust other people. And, you know, as, as we find over and over again, there's good reason for that trust. People take care of each other. Yeah. And I, I guess you have to risk um, hitting a bad apple once in a while, but I'd rather hit a bad apple once in a while than not trust the world. Well, you and I both, we belong to the risk club. I think you go out there and you take some risks, and every once in a while it goes wrong, but 99% of the time it goes right, and something yeah. unimaginably wonderful and enriching happens as a result. And your life gets pressed down, and, and a lot of the serendipity and the joy and the connections are out of it if you are completely risk-averse. Right. We have Elizabeth on the phone in Michigan. Elizabeth, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. I was calling to uh, tell you about the kindness of strangers we experienced in Switzerland last fall. Let's hear the story. Um, I was traveling with my husband and my two sisters-in-law, and uh, they kind of looked to me to be their tour guide because I have a lot more travel experience than them. And we had planned to spend the morning in uh, Molesson sur Gruyere. Excuse my bad friend. Yeah, Molesson, uh, M O L E S I N, famous for its cheese. Yes, and uh, so we uh, we took the train to uh, the Gruyere stop, and then the little post bus up uh, the mountain, and then you walk further up a little hill to this uh, great little place where they give uh, cheese demonstration in the old way. Right. And uh, we experienced that and then discovered they had this really nice cafe and, you know, forget whatever plans we had. We had to have lunch and we're 
not paying much attention and uh, let's have another bowl of mac and cheese. <laughs> it was so good. Must have been um, good macaroni and cheese oh, here in the Swiss Alps. Yes, and the fondue. And, <laughs> if you've never uh, had tw- macaroni and cheese in mm. Switzerland, you have not had macaroni and cheese. <laughs> but, okay. That's, that's true. And as we were leaving this place, I looked down the hill and saw the post bus leaving. And I'm thinking, oh, well, there'll probably be another one in 10, 20 minutes. So we walk on down the hill, and, of course, it's starting to rain. And <laughs> we're trying to figure out the bus schedule, and it becomes pretty clear that there's not going to be another bus that will go uh, back down the mountain for about four hours now. <laughs> So more macaroni and cheese. <laughs> well, of course, yeah. It's like there is nothing else to do there. <laughs> it's like, what are we going to do in the rain for four hours? There was a little coffee shop right next to the bus. Uh, okay, this is like literally the end of the road up in the yes, Swiss Alps. Yeah, yes. okay. So we, I walk into the coffee shop, and um, in my bad French and pantomime ask, you know, am I reading this right? Is there any way back down to the train station? And between the waitress and a couple of other patrons, <laughs> they, they discuss. And um, I had noticed a lot of school children around. Well, it turns out that there was a group of school kids there on a field trip. And uh, the, the bus driver and the adult chaperones turned around and said, well, just ride the bus back with us and the kids. <laughs> and it's like, huh. really? It's like, you're sure there's room? Oh, yeah. So um, one of my other sisters-in-law is a school teacher, and she was just shocked. She said, in the United States, you would never let strangers on a bus with the kids. But they were happy to do it and, uh, and drove us back, which... Uh, save the day because then we could go on to the chocolate factory. That's true. You do <laughs> kind of think a little bit about the um, the consequences of having a, a what is it litigious society like we live in, where right. you could never let a strange adult on your bus. And in Switzerland, it's uh, it's a little different. Elizabeth, thanks for your story. You're welcome. Our phone number is eight seven seven three 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 seven four two five. It's so fun to share these kind of uh, inspirational acts of kindness from strangers. And June's on the phone in Stockton, California. Hello, June. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Pretty good. Thanks for having me on the program. Yeah. Do you have some uh, example of the kindness of strangers overseas? I sure do. And uh, actually, my story started like a year before we took a trip to Italy. It was actually a three-country trip that we planned, me and my wife, and then... uh, at the same time, I also wanted to plan a wedding anniversary, renew all of our vows for our 10th year wedding. So um, what I did was a year before our scheduled trip, I tried uh, calling up different churches and places where I could have a pastor maybe officiate a, a ceremony in Italy. And so without the knowledge of my wife, I contacted different churches, different pastors, Somebody referred me to a Christian missionary in Bologna, Italy. Mm-hmm. And so I emailed him, and then um, his wife, him and his wife, responded back, and we exchanged emails. You know, they, these are people that I don't even know. I haven't even seen their faces. So, um, But they were so gracious and kind enough to help me with my, my plans to surprise my wife. And um, the act of kindness that they even opened up their home to us and told me that we could stay, my whole family could stay with them in Bologna, Italy, at their apartment, which was a three-bedroom apartment. So that was really a blessing, and um, I got in contact with them. They gave us tips on traveling to Italy with children, because we planned to take our children with us at the mm-hmm. trip. Uh, they were ages uh, three and seven. When we got to Italy, they welcomed us in their home with open arms. You know, they really shared a lot of the Italian life to us. And as I said, we don't know them. They don't know us. But hmm. And so um, as part of the planning that we did, uh, we ended up doing the uh, renewal of vows in, in Florence, which was about a couple of hours' drive from Bologna. And I wouldn't say it's not a random act of kindness. It was a deliberate act for us, really, so... Premeditated. Yeah. So my <laughs> wife and my kids were really happy with these. All right. We've uh, got to run along, June. Thanks for sharing that. That's That was a good example. Thank you. Uh-huh. Bye now. 
And Karina emails us from Cleveland, and she writes, My friends and I have been warned about the rudeness of the Parisians before our trip. What we found was an owner of a small hotel who jumped up and down with joy when our lost luggage was returned. Frenchmen who pried my boyfriend out from between the doors of the metro and polite, <laughs> kind people all throughout the city. Don, isn't that interesting how a lot of people, they go to France and they're like primed to experience rudeness and they, they experience friendliness. Exactly. I think if you go to France prepared to find rudeness, you, you sort of bring it on yourself. And if you go there prepared to find kindness, then the people just blossom and they, they take care of you like anywhere in the world. And in so many places, if you go where people are kind of, life's a drag, I got to sit here and deal with foreigners to make my, uh, you know, to, to earn my living, a lot of times you're just going to be part of the economy. But if you can get into any culture in a way where you are part of the party instead of part of the economy, uh, sometimes just making a wrong turn and getting off the train in, in a town that has no tourism, all of a sudden you meet all those friendly people instead of all those people that see you like a, a dollar sign. That's exactly right. That's why I love, of course, getting off the beaten path whenever I can. And yeah. even in a big city where there's a monument, I go to the monument, but then I like going three or four blocks away from the monument where there's just the local market and the local patisserie, let's say, in Paris, and where you sit down and really get to know the locals. And, and they'll they'll warm up to you because, just as you say, you're not a commodity. You're a human being, a fellow a fellow human. And that's I just have seen that time and time again all around the globe, how people relate to people on that very intimate level. Oh, yeah. And when you're in the travel business writing like you and me, when you hear these incredible examples of kindness and so on, so often the case is here's a person who traveled where there is almost no tourism. I was just in Iran, and I'll never forget being stuck in a traffic jam in Tehran. And the man in the next car asked my driver to roll down the window. He saw me sitting in the back seat. And the stranger in the next car handed over a bouquet of flowers, gave it to my driver, and said, give this to the foreigner in your back seat and apologize for our traffic. I just thought, that was not the Iran I was preconditioned to find, you know. Uh, just God, a, that's beautiful. A beautiful, beautiful story that'll stay. In, I mean, it's just a little bouquet of flowers, but it'll stay with me for the rest of my life. And Richard's on the line in Sacramento. Hi, Richard. Hi, Rick. Thanks for your call. Thank you for taking it. Um, my girlfriend and I were traveling through Spain this last summer, and I, this is my second time into Europe. Wonderful time. But um, everybody talks about how bad the trains are in Spain and how rude everybody is and everything else. And we were in Granada. No, we were in Cordoba, I'm sorry. And um, the only thing I had not been able to print off the computer when I made all my reservations was my reservation for the high-speed train to Madrid. So we got to the station, and we were going through everything, and I printed everything out, and I couldn't find my reservations. Oh, no. And we're running back and forth from the reservation desk to the help desk and back and forth, back and forth, and nobody spoke English. Every time I said, anybody speak English? No. And my girlfriend spoke a little bit of Spanish. But by the end of it, they were able to find out that I had transposed one letter differently, and it was supposed to be a letter instead of a number. And but they were just so helpful, and it was just so wonderful to find that kind of help in a foreign country. That sure uh, kind of warms up your uh, your feelings after you leave that experience, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. They were wonderful people, and they just really helped. My girlfriend and I were just like, oh, wow, you know, this is just so great. It's frustrating when people want to help, but there is that language barrier sometimes. And I always try to remind Americans that... Uh, you can't expect people to speak English. I, I, I used to take groups around France, and constantly people were upset with how you know, unhelpful the postal clerks were in some small town in France. And I just had to remind them that small-town French postal clerks are every bit as you know, cheery, speedy, and multilingual as small-town postal clerks are right here in the United States. <laughs> and why that should be any difference is beyond me. So I think with the right attitude, like apparently you and your partner had there, Richard, you, you meet people who want to help you out, and it all works out well in the end, doesn't it? It does. It, it was a wonderful time. All right. Thanks, Richard, for your call. Hey, thank you for taking it. Don, yeah. in your book, it, it, it says, The kindness of strangers is ours to give and take, and we shape the world with each embrace. That is so beautiful. Who wrote that? Uh, I wrote that. You wrote that. Uh, it sounds like the Dalai, it's Dalai Lama quality stuff, Don. And uh, I think you must Thank have been inspired by this uh, chore of yours to collect 26 uh, examples of the kindness of strangers. Put it in your book, The Kindness of Strangers. And uh, just, we got to think about that. The kindness of strangers is ours to give and take, and we shape the world with each embrace. That's the theme at the heart of the book, and I have discovered it over and over again, that we give and we take, 
and the world just gets enriched every time we take care of someone else or someone else takes care of us. And the more we open ourselves up, the more the world opens up to us, and we just get better and better all the time. And that's our, that's our potential as travelers, to do that. That's a beautiful thing. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been joined by Don George as he helps us celebrate the kindness of strangers. I want to be your buddy, buddy, though the road be smooth or muddy. I want to be a friend of yours, mmm and little bit, mmm and little bit, mmm and little bit more. Here's some haiku recently sent to us by our listeners. They describe some of their island travels. Gail Kennedy and her husband were living on a 34-foot sailboat when she sent us a batch of haiku she wrote. They were passing through the Turks and Caicos Islands on their way to the Dominican Republic at the time. She emailed them to us from Miami while waiting for the weather to clear so they could continue sailing to the Bahamas. Here are some of our favorites. Waves and swells subside, easing to glassy flatness. Look for the wind's breath. Tonight, fresh grouper, caught and cooked in 15. Hardly time to die. Watch rhythms overnight. Two people, one cat, one boat, one asleep soundly. Moonrise on black water, gaudy cruise ship to starboard, alone after all. Traveling abroad, seven months close to the bone, letting excess go. Send us a haiku or two that you've written about your travels. There's a link in the radio section of our website at ricksteves.com. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Special thanks this week for production help to Pat O'Connor, the Radio Foundation, and KQED Radio, and to Bebek Pandy for reading this week's Traveler's Haiku. We also get production help from Sarah McCormick, Andrew Wakeling, and Robin Cronin. You'll find links to our guests and archived audio on demand in the radio section of our website at ricksteves.com. And there are links to send us your comments, questions, and travel stories, and to be notified of our next recording dates and topics. I'm the show's producer, Tim Tatton. Join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Each year, Rick Steves' tour guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours all over Europe, one small group at a time. This year, you can choose from three dozen exciting itineraries covering the best of Europe from Ireland to Istanbul, Paris to St. Petersburg, and practically everywhere in between. For a free catalog and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.